Will Met officials unanimously oppose Northwestern's Ryan Field proposal? And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news of the week from the local housing market, including what's behind the rise of downtown's super luxury apartment market and how Chicago is safe from running out of homes, but other cities are not. Demand really drives a housing market and certainly drives the construction of new homes. If I know I can sell 100 homes, I'll build them. If I don't think I can, I won't build them. And that's one of the questions that sort of hangs over our economy is how long do we continue losing population? And does that sort of continue to soften the demand for homes? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, August 10th. Want some wins? Wintrust Community Banks is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in personal banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. That's one win, and that's for the second year in a row. That's a win-win. And you can now earn even more interest with Wintrust's new savings rates. That's a win-win-win. To get your savings some wins, visit Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. That's Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2020. Award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey, Dennis, how's it going? Great, Amy. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. As ever, many things to talk about, all of which I'm very excited to hear all the dirt about. So let's start by talking about how Chicago is safe from running out of homes, but other cities, not so much. Tell me about this. This is a new study out this week from the Bank of America, and it actually focuses on some categories Chicago is not in. Hmm. And those are the ones that are most likely to run out of homes in, or to run short of homes, to run to a critical low supply period, and those that are really very unlikely to. We're not in either of those polls. We're in the not very likely to. Okay. So if there are three categories, oh my gosh, you're running out of homes. Uh, Not really. You're unlikely to run out of homes and you're never going to run out. We're in the, you're unlikely to run out of homes. This is important because Bank of America actually looked at housing stock not at the inventory of homes that are on the market today because interest rates could change and there could be other reasons that the housing market changes. So the question is over the long term, who's got enough houses to go around? And um, I I just stacked them up in, that may have been sort of an awkward way to do it, but essentially it goes from at the top of the list, the places where a lot of population is coming in and a lot of housing is built and being built down to the very bottom where they're losing population fast and there's really very little housing being built. So there's sort of an excess of housing and is likely to be a larger excess as time goes by and more people leave. We're one step above that. They ranked these from hot, warm, cool, cold. We're in cool, which is to say we're not very likely to have such an extreme lack of inventory that prices are skyrocketing. And of course, that's a little bit of restating the obvious because we know that that has failed to happen over the course of time. And now you're telling us it's fail- it's going to fail to happen. But we look good because our prices aren't going to skyrocket the way they are in places like Orlando and San Antonio. But the reason we look good is not so great. 
those places are booming, according to the Bank of America report, because um, lots of job growth, very sturdy, very resilient economy, and lots of people coming to town. We are losing population. So the reason we're not likely to run out of housing is not only are we building very little housing and very little new housing, and do we have a low supply anyway, but we're not going to need so much because demand softens as population leaves. You and I have talked about this when we've talked about new home building and various other things. Demand really drives a housing market and certainly drives the construction of new homes. If I know I can sell 100 homes, I'll build them. If I don't think I can, I won't build them. And that's one of the questions that sort of hangs over our economy is how long do we continue losing population? And does that sort of continue to soften the demand for homes? And what are some of the other cities at, at the other extreme ends of this sort of spectrum? At the cold end, which is the, the places where there's long-term population decline and excess of housing, those include St. Louis and Detroit, which have been stagnant for a very long time. Certainly compared to Chicago, they have been stagnant places. Another one is Miami, and it's on that list for a different reason, and that is big boom in population for several years, sort of cresting during the pandemic. And that has slowed in part because of the cost of living and the sort of changes that come from a huge amount of population moving in. Right. But construction hasn't slowed. So St. Louis and Detroit on this list because there just aren't people to fill the houses that exist. Miami on the list because they're, they may end up overbuilt. They may end up with one of those overhangs in the near future. Um, up at the top, it's, I think I mentioned Orlando, San Antonio. These are places where there's a lot of housing being built. There are a lot of people moving in for jobs and prices are going up fast. I think the number in the report was that uh, between mid-2019 and mid-2023, home prices in Orlando rose by over 45%. Wow, that's significant. Which is really hard. And and so the question is, how much longer does that last? How How sustainable is that? And is there housing to feed that population boom, which is not an issue for Chicago? Yeah. All right. Well, here's one. I feel like this is sort of our theme every week, but that is you you looked into what what is behind the rise of downtown's super luxury apartment market. Again, I think every week we talk about at least one or two uh, that that's you know in, in this category. But we're talking about condos, but this is about uh, apartments. Tell me about this. You know, this story started in part because uh, the demand for high end condos seems to be diminished. Right. Uh, and we've talked about a lot of reasons for that. I'm an empty nester, and I don't really want to invest in downtown as much as my friends of five years ago did. There are a lot of other reasons that that it seems downtown luxury condos aren't selling in the numbers they were. But another reason for it, and agents mention this to me all the time, is if you don't want to make that investment, if you're not sure, I'm moving in from Hinsdale, not really sure I want to live downtown. We'll see how it works. You rent. And it, it, one of the things I said in a tweet is, why do people who can afford $100,000 a year for housing rent instead of buying? And the answer really is because they can, because there is this crop of luxury rental buildings that have gone up primarily in the downtown neighborhoods over the course of the past decade. They're going up in large part because uh, it's a lot harder to finance a condo building now for a developer than it is to finance a rental building. And 
as one person said to me, developers are going to develop. So if they can't build condos, they build apartments. And we've had tens of thousands of, of downtown apartments come online in the last several years. We're not talking about tens of thousands of super luxury apartments. I was looking at the 10, 15, $30,000 a month rentals. And there, there are only a few hundred of those, but, um, but they're rented. Everybody you talk to, every agent says, you know, we put these out there and they get rented pretty quickly. And a lot of that is um, because, you know, I get the amenities I would in a condo. I get the privacy. I get the level of luxury. I'm in a cool new neighborhood. A lot of these have been built in Fulton Market, and I'm not so interested in the condos in the Gold Coast anymore. Uh, but also, it's a way for me to sort of make a short-term commitment. I can rent uh, rent in this building, and then if that doesn't work, I can go to that other building or stop renting, go back to Hinsdale, or stop renting, go to Florida, whatever it is. Or decide it's for you and and buy. Or decide it's for you and continue renting. Move to another building and another building and one after that. And another thing, which we have discussed quite a bit and which came up in the, the other topic we were just discussing, is the idea that not a lot of people make really good money on their investment in a downtown condo. So I can put my money somewhere else and have it perform, put that money that I would uh, put on a, in a down payment on a condo somewhere else and have it perform. And then my housing payment is just going to rent because um, I don't see the downtown condo market as a big money maker anymore. And so that would be another reason this is happening. What role would you say that the hybrid work environment plays in that? Because it used to be the story was quite clearly, you got a job downtown, you live downtown, so you could be close to work. How has that changed? Who is renting? Boy, I didn't look into that, Amy, because th this story was was not expressly about that. But I would say, if you're a hybrid worker, if you only have to be downtown two or three days a week, that would be another disincentive to investing a couple million dollars as a down payment in a super fabulous downtown condo and then having your monthly payment after that or paying cash for the whole thing. Again, I'd rather put my money somewhere else. And if I feel like I have a temporary or short-term commitment to downtown, because I'm only going in a few days a week, then I may be more inclined to rent. But that's right off the seat of my pants because I wasn't prepared to answer that question. Count on me for throwing curveballs. That's However, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, a pair of nine million plus dollar condos that have buyers lined up. Tell me. Yeah. So this sounds like it flies in the face of what I just said, right? Oh, there's not so much demand. For uh huh. It kind of does. Except <laughs> that um, it, it, it also doesn't. Uh, these are two condos at one Chicago, which for people who don't know, it's two buildings on one platform across from Holy Name Cathedral. You can also see it from the Kennedy and the Metro tracks, but best known as being right there by Holy Name Cathedral. It's called One Chicago. There's an apartment tower and there's a condo tower on this platform. And, and that's not even the right way to put it. Let me put it this way. There's an apartment tower. And in the second tower, the lower part is apartments. The upper part is condos. So there are only 77 condos. There are over 700 rentals. Of those 77, six are full floor apartments way up toward the top. Two of them just went under contract last week, both priced over 9 million, 9.5 and 9.75 million. A third of those six uh, went under contract at nearly 14 million a couple of months ago. So I, I put these down. I, I said they're under contract, which of course means they there's the possibility they don't sell, but they're under contract. And if they come in at those prices, they could be 
in the top five or depending on how things go in the top 10 prices of the year when they close. And that would be pretty remarkable because you weren't in the top 10 if you were $9 million in 2022. As you and I have discussed, the market up there has, has come down quite a bit. There are far fewer sales. That's not to say that these aren't fantastic condos and it's not a fantastic building. One Chicago is from a developer or a development firm that has built some great buildings in the city, some, some great condo buildings, some super high-end buildings, number nine Walton and others. At this point, by my count, it's about one third sold. It's 27 units out of 77 units. Those are actually closed and transferred to the owners. So those don't count these two 9 million plus or the $14 million one. If you add those in, then it's 30 sold or selling. The, the condos have been available for a couple of years. The building has only recently completed, but in the time since the building started going up, we've had COVID and we've had a lot of other changes in the downtown real estate market. So I sort of saw these two going under contract as, as kind of a sign that there is life in that upper end market. It's just not quite as um, supercharged as it was a year, two, three years ago. So Dennis, tell me about this Lakeview apartment building that used to be a parking garage and there's interesting art on it and there's something called a Texas donut. What is all that? Fill me in. I'm so fascinated by this story. I was actually in this parking garage when construction first started and now I've gone back and it has been remade as an apartment building. It's on Broadway in Lakeview. It's in the 3100 block of Broadway. It was a, it's really a six story parking garage. It's five stories and you parked on the roof. So a six story parking garage built lot line to lot line with its neighbors touching. So uh, it was kind of out of date. One of the main ways it's out of date is that there's only one ramp to go up and down. So there are lights and mirrors and things and you have to stop and make sure nobody's coming down before you go up. So no longer really great to use as a parking garage. And this father-son team who have bought some other historical buildings in Lakeview and elsewhere and converted them into rental lockers, bought this building and found that a better use for it than storage might be apartments. Well, how do you do that if you've got a five or six story parking tap parking garage that you can't take down. And it's fascinating to see it's, I hope that a TV station goes and covers it because you really kind of need to walk it with a camera to make it clear. But if you picture this parking garage, when you drive up a parking ramp, you then get to a flat part where you park your car. And then you go around that flat part and go up another ramp to another flat part. Well, the flat parts of this parking garage, which face Broadway are now apartments and the ramps are still ramps. So you can still drive all the way up to the sixth floor and park right outside your apartment. And the flat parts, most of the flat part is apartments and a little bit of it is parking. It's uh, it's a fascinating conversion. I compared it in the story to like turning a warehouse building into loft apartments, which we've done by the dozens, if not more in, in the city. This is a building that had one use and has been turned into a completely different use. I don't think anybody, when they built, when uh, the Ritz garage was built in the 1920s on Broadway, anybody was saying, one day, this will be apartments. So the developers who did it, as I think I said, they're this father, son, um, John and Charlie Mangle. They showed me around a couple of years ago when they were getting started. And you can kind of picture, okay, this, this sort of makes sense. And then I came back when it was done last week. And if somebody didn't tell you this used to be a parking garage, you would think, oh, how interesting that somebody built 
an apartment building and put a parking ramp in the back because the conversion is so cl uh, complete that you really, you, you wouldn't guess what it used to be. Um, there's one other thing to say about that conversion. They added two floors on the top. And if you look at it on Broadway, it's very clear. This is the old building. These are the two new floors on top. They did that intentionally. A lot of people do that with additions to historical buildings so that it's clear that's the old building and we didn't try to fake. The addition looks completely different. So how many units are, are what's that? Ask me about the Texas donut part. I'm going to, but I want to ask you another question about the apartments first. No, I'm in charge. <laughs> no, me. Although all of our listeners think it's your show. Right, exactly. All the time people go, the podcast that you and Dennis Rod can do, or next time you're on Dennis's podcast, that's my favorite one. Like, yeah. Okay. I want to ask you about the art on the side of the building, but also I'm fascinated by this idea of driving up to your apartment. That's very cool. How many units are on each flat part on each floor? Uh, I don't remember. It's 72 units total okay. in the whole building. And I think about half of them are in the new floors. So that would mean there are about 36 on the lower floors. What we didn't talk about is why this is called a Texas donut. Yeah. Tell me about this. In apartment construction, Texas apparently does this a lot. You build a building with the apartments on the outside and the parking on the inside. That's new, but basically the, you know, the apartments wrap the parking. So that's a donut. Oh, I see. The hole in the middle for parking. We have some versions of those in Chicago. If you park in downtown Naperville, there are some buildings that are Texas donuts. There's like retail on the outside and parking hidden in uh, hidden in back. Same where they did some of the conversion at the Glen, the old Glenview Naval Air Station. Yeah. Those are all built new. Most Texas donuts are built new. This one we're talking about is, first of all, not only in the city and the first in the city, but a conversion from one kind of building into a Texas donut. Right. So right. I don't have a good bakery term to add to that, but it's it, it's pretty unusual that they converted this building. I had no idea Texas Donut was a thing. I learned so much about building stuff and building terms from you, Dennis. I really do. Well, the thing is, Texas Donut is the more fun way to describe it. I, I prefer that term. You can also describe it as a wrap apartment building, but like- Oh, that's not fun at all. Everybody'd much rather talk about a Texas Donut. Why Texas though? Did it originate there? Uh, but yeah, because apparently, you know, they're they're building lots and lots of apartments and they build these multi-story apartment buildings with parking behind. There is the oldest one I know of, the first one we know of, actually our editor, Rob Garcia, found it is one that was converted in Wichita, Kansas. There was an old parking garage that was turned into a Texas donut of apartments. But this is the first one in Chicago. I feel like we just need random place names for, for lots of things. Oh, that's a Iowa roof, whatever. Like exactly. we're just going to call it that. Sure. It's a, oh, look, a Kansas driveway. Sure. Well, there is, of course, the famous Detroit toilet in Chicago, especially in Chicago, <laughs> right? Where you have a toilet in the basement and no bathroom. I didn't, I didn't know that was called a Detroit toilet though. Well, I think you have to emphasize Detroit. It's a Detroit toilet. Okay. Well, again, I learned something every week from you, Dennis, every single week. Amy, I blew you off course and we didn't talk about the art. Yes. Tell me about the art on the side of the building. So it's about a 50 foot rendering of a medallion, a sort of an art deco medallion. And it's it's sort of cool that it's there because the original building, the parking garage, has these medallions all across the front. They were sort of revealed in the rehab that these developers did. And the building is called the medallion. So then a mural was painted of a medallion. Because this is, you know, it's a nice thing to sort of, uh, I don't know, commemorate or honor 
that rather than, you know, rather than turn this into some junky, who knows what, they turned it into an apartment building. Yeah. And to kind of give a nod to the structure before, I think that's interesting. Yeah. 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 It's cool. Cool. Well, speaking of old structures, tell me about this Victorian house in Elgin that is for sale for only the second time in 144 years. How cool is this? You know, and when you take a look, you can sort of tell why it wouldn't be sold more than twice. It's so, isn't it a sweetheart when you look at those pictures? Yeah. I have actually been not inside, but outside that house once on just sort of a ramble looking at Victorians in um, Elgin. I saw this one and you just, I mean, you've got so much to look at. It's, it's, I think to some people's eyes, it's busy, but to me, it's just so full of details, whether it's the wood fans, the multiple shades of white, purple, pink, the shingle patterns, it's, and it's got two turrets. It's East Lake style. It's a subcategory of Victorians, East Lake, which are these very, very ornate ones built um, in 1889 on the bluff. It's so in Elgin, downtown is primarily on the west side of the river. And then there was this beautiful neighborhood of Victorians on the east side of the river up on the bluff. It was apparently known as Rich Man's Row. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And this is one of the nicest of the houses and also one of the best that remain. A lot of them are gone on Rich Man's Row. Built in 1889, absolutely wonderful. Built for a couple, Aura and Anna Pelton whose name is still there over the front door, uh, sort of etched in the glass transom over the door, designed by a guy named Gilbert Trumbull, who designed a lot of other buildings in Elgin, but I can't find anything as colorful and exuberant as this. So the Peltons built it in the 1880s, and in the early 1960s, a long, long time ago, they sold it to Sue and Arthur Izzo. Those two have passed away. Their daughter is now selling it. She apparently lives nearby, hasn't actually lived in it. It's only actually been sold once in the 1960s and now for sale again at um, $650,000. It's such a remarkable house. And you know, you can tell because after we did a story, it has just fanned out over people's Instagrams and everything else because it's just, I think I said earlier, a sweetheart. It's it's like a nice big three-story piece of candy sitting there on that bluff because the colors and the details really, you know, you picture storybooks happening in that house. Oh, definitely. There's some really beautiful details. So head to chicagobusiness.com and look at the photos. I'm so into this dining room ceiling. There's sort of this crosshatch pattern with colorful squares. It's so beautiful that matches this wallpaper. What a neat room. And that staircase, oh, big, hefty staircase curving up from the- You know how I feel about staircases that would like require an entrance. You can't just zip down those, uh, zip up and down those stairs. You make an entrance when you come down those stairs. Well, I think what you might dress in, Amy, is there are acres of wallpaper in that house. Mm-hmm. And some of it's going to need to be removed. It's a little much. So I think you can- if you make a dress out of the wallpaper, you come sweeping down those stairs. Like a Scarlett O'Hara curtains nod sort of thing. Yeah, like a Carol Burnett. Yeah, you have a little <laughs> Carol Burnett in you. Definitely. Definitely. It's a pretty cool house. The last time it sold was in the 60s. It does need um, kitchen, baths, those sorts of things. But, you know, you're starting with a pretty wonderful canvas. Oh, very cool details for sure. All right. Well, talk to me about this house in Lincoln Park that has been purchased by a Bulls player. Hobie White. Uh, he bought, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, he They were asking 5.1 million. He signed a multi-million dollar contract, about a $40 million contract in June. 
And then this house went under contract to some buyer. Turns out that right after signing that big contract, he put down to play, he put down a big contract on a house. Um, really nice house uh, in Lincoln Park. As I think I just said, they were asking 5.1 million. He's paying 4.8. It's a classic sort of a new Lincoln Park house. It's limestone facade with carved columns into it. And inside you have just big, beautiful rooms. For a while, people were building these conservatories that attach the house to the alley garage. So you never have to go outside. Which, you know, that's fair because Chicago. Because Chicago. I'm not sure, but I think those can't be built anymore. I, I may be misstating, but I know there was a controversy over building them for a while, but this has one. And it's so it's nice. You're in your house and then you pass into this sort of Victorian style glass conservatory, which is a room and opens out onto your yard, but you can also continue through it to the garage. That's my favorite part of the house. That and also um, the roof is lovely. Oh, yeah the amount of kitchen storage is kind of remarkable. Like the whole island is drawers. If you play like a bowl, you're going to eat like a bowl, right? And you, you're going to need <laughs> a lot of pantry storage. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, quite a kitchen. Uh, again, head to chicagobusiness.com and you can check out all these photos for yourself. All right. Well, Dennis, what um, what's coming up in the week ahead? Right now I'm working on a story. There's a, um, a, a property with some significant history that's at risk, oh. that's in trouble on the West side. And I'm looking into that. Okay. That's a very good cliffhanger. We will meet you back here this time next week and talk all about it. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a data breach hits Lurie Children's Hospital patients. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Do you know a leader, a visionary, an influencer, an innovator? Do you know a Titan? Join the ranks of Chicago's Titan 100, a new exclusive community for C-suite executives. Stand up and be recognized and tap into the power of a growing national network. Learn more, nominate someone, or apply today at whipfleecom slash Chicago Titan. That's W-I-P-F-L-I dot com slash Chicago Titan. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Brandon Dupre reported that opposition to Northwestern University's proposed new stadium continues to mount, as will Met officials have come out against the university's plan to add concerts to a revamped Ryan Field. Dupre noted in reporting that in a unanimous vote late Tuesday night, Wilmette's board passed a resolution outlining its concerns over the addition of up to 10 concerts at the stadium, citing increased traffic and parking issues, noise pollution, and potential public safety effects. The move by Wilmette comes just a few weeks before the City of Evanston's Land Use Commission makes its recommendations to Evanston's City Council, which has the final decision on approving zoning changes that would allow the proposed stadium to host concerts and sell alcohol, which now stand as major roadblocks in securing approval of the school's prized new $800 million stadium. Dupre also noted in reporting that the issues raised by Wilmette residents on Tuesday night are in line with concerns raised by those who live near the stadium in Evanston. Also noting that the perceived commercialization of the stadium has emerged as a major point of friction, especially as Northwestern holds tax-exempt nonprofit status in Evanston. Northwestern has also faced renewed opposition to the stadium amid the fallout from the hazing and abuse scandal that has rocked the Evanston campus. 
Dupre also reported that a group of six Northwestern tenured professors released a letter calling on the school to halt the planning and marketing process of the stadium until the crisis is resolved. Joining a group of Evanston residents who also called on the school to pause the project amid the scandal. Dupre reported that as of Wednesday morning, over 200 Northwestern faculty members have signed the letter. Bloomberg reported that on a Tuesday call with analysts, Rivian Automotive's head of software made a surprise appearance, promising upgrades ranging from adaptive tracking of battery range to so-called drone mode operation using augmented reality. Bloomberg reported that Wasim Ben Said, senior vice president of software development, said on the call, quote, We believe that our software capabilities are a structural differentiator that will only grow in importance as electric vehicles continue to increase in complexity. Rivian, whose plant is in downstate Normal, has made 22 major software upgrades to its vehicles since launch at the end of 2021, according to Ben Said, adding features like bird's eye view, camp mode, and snow mode. Bloomberg reported that he spoke after Rivian told investors it will build about 52,000 vehicles in 2023, up from its previous goal of 50,000. The company manufactures a pair of consumer vehicles and a battery electric delivery van for Amazon, which is its biggest shareholder. On the call, Rivian's CEO also talked up the importance of software and electronics, saying that they will be central to the company's next-generation vehicle called R2. O'Hare International Airport was the fourth busiest airport in North America in 2022, as it struggled to regain its pre-pandemic flying level. Last year was the second straight year that O'Hare's total passenger count trailed not only Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, but also Dallas-Fort Worth and Denver, that according to Airports Council International. Cranes John Pletz reported that during the pandemic, Dallas and Denver leapfrogged Los Angeles and Chicago, which both rely more heavily on international travel as safety measures and other restrictions curtailed overseas flying more than domestic trips. Pletz also noted in reporting that in 2019, O'Hare ranked third in passengers, behind Atlanta and Los Angeles. Chicago's largest airport traditionally has ranked higher by flights than passengers, but that's beginning to change as airlines like Chicago-based United do more of their flying with large aircraft than smaller regional jets. Pletz pointed out that the continued rebound in flying at O'Hare is important not only to the revenue of the airport, but also the city's economy, which depends heavily on business travel and tourism. Passenger-wise, Hartsfield-Jackson was the busiest airport in North America last year with 93.7 million passengers, according to ACI data. O'Hare had 68.3 million passengers, compared with 84.6 million in 2019. Pletz further reported, citing ACI data, that international travel continues its recovery, boosting the nation's traditional gateway airports. International passenger traffic at North American airports increased 117.2 percent last year, compared with a 25.8 percent increase in domestic traffic. International passenger traffic at North American airports increased 117.2 percent last year, compared with a 25.8 percent increase in domestic traffic. The biggest beneficiary of the international rebound that began last year was New York's JFK International, which ranked sixth in passengers after falling out of the top 10 in 2021. But as Pletz also reported, the surge in overseas air travel has also continued. O'Hare's passenger total through May was 13 percent behind 2019 levels, according to city data. A year ago, the gap was 22 percent.
Lurie Children's Hospital said in a press release that the personal data of some 2,000 patients of Lurie Children's Surgical Foundation was leaked from a third-party electronic billing provider. Data that was accessed includes names, dates of birth, addresses, and social security numbers of a subset of the Surgical Foundation's patients, according to the release. Crane's John Aspland reported that the nonprofit foundation associated with the Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago was informed on May 16th of the security incident by third-party biller NextGen Healthcare. The press release from Lurie said that NextGen told the hospital that on March 30th and April 14th of this year, it was alerted to unusual login and account activities on the NextGen office system. Lurie said that NextGen then launched an investigation with the help of third-party forensics experts and said that it also took measures to contain the incident, including resetting passwords and further reinforcing the security of its systems. NextGen has said there is no evidence that anyone accessed any individual's health or medical records, but the investigation showed that an unknown third party gained unauthorized access to a limited set of electronically stored patient data between March 29th and April 14th of this year. The release from Lurie also said that NextGen notified affected individuals on April 29th and has offered 24 months of free identity monitoring, fraud consultation, and identity theft restoration services through Experian. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.